Okay, Olivia. So I just want to welcome you onto Moon Juiced, the podcast. So thank, thank you for you, being Rachel. here. <laughs> We've talked about this for a while and it's a delight to be here. I know. Okay, so right off the bat, I have a question. What is spirituality, Olivia? Wow, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the latest definition that I heard that I really loved was that spirituality is our humanness. Ooh. And what I like about that is that it points it right back to here instead of it being kind of woo-woo out there. Yeah. And then at the same time, there's an infinite, it retains that infinite quality that I love about the word spirituality because it it points to this infinite quality that we can develop our humanness. That's a great definition. I think back in the day and still kind of today, I get scared of using the term spirituality because I worry that people think woo-woo and all this, all these derogatory terms. But there is something so human and grounded about spirituality. And I like, I like being able to connect, uh, you know, different philosophies and sciences and ways of being all together to make it sound like one whole unit in a way. Mm. So, so yeah. Yeah. Spirituality is like this thread going through along with our humanness. It's the thread between everything. Yeah. Yeah. So like in Tibetan Buddhism and diamond approach, which is my spiritual path and constellations. And I know you have a spiritual path. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that thread that weaves it all. Great. And there is so much to get into with this conversation. So let's get into the diamond approach that you were just talking about, because uh, I never heard of that until I met you. So, yeah. Yeah. So the diamond approach was started by a man from Kuwait named um, Hamid Ali. And he also goes by the pen name A.H. Almas. And he was actually in physics. He came from Kuwait to the United States when he was 18. And um, he wanted to understand the universe. But then he started going to different spiritual teachers and he jumped out of physics and went into um, spiritual development and personal development. And the heart of the diamond approach is inquiry. So it's like, in this moment, what am I experiencing? You know, I'm experiencing connection with you. I'm experiencing some excitement because we've been talking about having this conversation for a while. Um, I'm experiencing some joy, you know, in being able to talk about things that I'm passionate about. So that's, that's how inquiry works. It's like, what's going on in this moment in my mind, in my heart, in my belly? Being unconditionally present with yourself. Yeah, yeah. So that's the core, that's like the central, the central practice. We also have meditation and we do some chanting sometimes, but the central practice is the inquiry. So in the diamond approach, I've developed that capacity that I can bring to clients and also, witnessing because we we witness each other's inquiry so just now when I was describing you know giving a mini mini taste of inquiry you were witnessing me and then if you started to explore what you're experiencing in the moment then I would be witnessing you Ooh. so I was in this internship with our mutual mutual friend and and uh colleague of mine, um, Keiko Honda, who does the Vancouver Arts Colloquium Society. And through her, Mm. I met someone that does this practice called proprioceptive dialogue. Have you ever heard of that before? No, I haven't. It sounds cool. What is it? So it's, I think he, he described it as embodied dialogue and I wrote an article on it when I was interning for her, but he, so I guess this was a practice that was developed somewhere in New York, not too long ago, but 
proprioceptivity okay. is a biological term and uh i believe that it relates to the body so it's like embodied listening so yeah. when it's like how listening. we sense in our body and it's like mm -hmm. it's like how we know where we are in space yeah yeah yeah. And so sorry, he, I no, I no, it's totally fine. <laughs> he collects these people, he gets all these people together. And uh, one person speaks at a time. So and, and it can just be anyone. it's kind of like popcorn style, whoever wants to speak will speak and they I think it's easy for people to get into their heads about it. Because when they speak, some people just like observe everything that they're seeing and some people are just speaking on the sensations they're feeling in their body or like a memory that will come up or like it's open-ended and he was saying how we need this more than ever now in the political environment just being aware of mm. yourself and how you're feeling when you're listening and staying silent when the other person is talking so it's just it's a one person at a time type of thing so um yeah, yeah it just i love that it reminded me of that so yeah and that reminds me of my neutron trail project which i think we've talked about a little bit where um, my grandfather was a a key nuclear physicist in the 20th century enrico fermi and um, he worked on the Manhattan Project to develop the first atomic bombs. Um, there's an element named after him in the periodic table. I, I feel kind of proud because Einsteinium is 99 and my grandfather's element, fermium, is 100. So it, you know, it just feels That is good so, that yeah, no, that is so fascinating. And we need to get into it because, I mean, well, I mean, I'm, I'm this is like, oh, my, my microphone. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel like I am being directly connected to history right here. So how about you tell us a little bit about your grandfather and how, um, so his development of, with the atomic bomb, how did that, how did that, uh, create impact on how he sees the world? And then later, how did that affect how you see the world? And mm, I'd like yeah. to know more about that. Yeah, so I'm gonna tell about that. And I, and I also wanna say about how I jumped to that from what you said about proprioceptive dialogue. Mm -hmm. My grandfather, um, he was living in Italy with my grandmother and their two kids, one of whom was my mom. Um, she was about eight when they came to the United States and they came because she, my grandmother being Jewish and just like in Germany with Hitler in Italy, there was starting to be anti-Semitic laws against Jews. And so they fled Italy and came to the United States. But unlike most refugees, my grandfather had job offers because he had won the Nobel Prize in physics. And so... Wow. When they came, he was already kind of like pulled into the Manhattan Project, which is the name of the project where they developed the first atomic bombs. And that was in the 40s. So um, like right in the midst of World War II. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather had mixed feelings about it all along because he was very much in favor of democracy. But on the other hand, um, he he didn't like the idea of developing bombs. So he was doing it. And at the same time, he had, he had mixed feelings about it. And so for me growing up, learning about who he was, and he did other, he, he also did other um, breakthroughs in physics. Like one of them, there's four basic forces in nature, gravity, electromagnetism. And then there's these two that we, us normal people like you and me never hear about the strong force and the weak force. Mm -hmm. And those hold atoms together. So he did the first credible theory of the weak force, which nobody knew much about. I mean, he was poking around with atoms, like bombarding them and breaking them apart and doing all these things. And that's how he ended up working on the Manhattan Project. 
Wow. So for me, um, I was born in the 50s and he died in the early 50s. So he died a few years before I was born. But in my family, he was like God. And him and Rachel Carson, who started the environmental movement mm. in the United States, um, they were like the two gods in our family. So I grew up kind of not kind of confused really about how come he was God if he helped. I mean, not nobody said he was God. I'm, I'm yeah, totally. Yeah. So how come he was like, how come like it was like he was so big, it was like brighter than a star, like, like I just had this adoration for who he was. And then at the same time, there was trouble because we know now proliferating atomic weapons is really dangerous. So I grew up kind of conflicted and confused. And wow. then when I discovered Diamond Approach and Inquiry, well, I wanted to um, bring it back out into the world. So that open-ended quality that you were talking about with the proprioceptive dialogue and that I discovered with the inquiry and the diamond approach, I wanted to bring it into the world. And so I started this neutron trail project where I went to the places where he had worked, like the key places where they developed the bomb. So in New Mexico, in Chicago, there was experiments early on before they actually built the bomb. I went to Rome where he had done his first experiment that he won the Nobel Prize. I went, you know, different, different places like that. And I talked to scientists and historians and different people. And it was really an amazing project because it, it got me out of my little fear bubble about who he was and my confusion bubble about what it all meant. Because the more I talked to other people, the more I realized we're all confused about atomic weapons. This isn't just in my family. It's this, we all have to deal with it. Yeah. And the cool thing is to be able to embrace all the contradictions together in a room. So I would give talks and workshops and I did that for, I don't know, six or seven years. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, it's kind of like just looking at where we're at technologically right now, like with algorithms and Mm -hmm. how algorithms aren't being handled very ethically in Silicon Valley. And it's, it's like, I mean, huge technological shift, uh, but in terms of how humanity is handling it right now, as we speak, it's, it's hard to deal yeah. with. Thank you for raising that because that's one of the key things that would come up is that the technology is ahead of our maturity as a species. And that was actually where my grandfather ended up before he passed away was he was beginning to see that and, and say that. Wow. So then that, that just kind of blows my mind how humanity can create technology that's ahead of itself. Yeah. Like what does that, what, what does that even mean for us? <laughs> that's kind of an existential yeah, well, threat it's an ex existential threat isn't it yeah yeah it is in in many arenas i mean we have all these atomic weapons all over the world and then governments that are splintering so they don't have the the structures and the containment and the level of responsibility that they need to have to have weapons of mass destruction that's one example. You just gave another one with the algorithms. Totally. I know it's scary to think about, and I hope that we'll never have to get to that point where we're using atomic weapons. Uh, but on the bright side, uh, I have been researching really in depth into blockchain technology. And I don't know if you know much about mm -hmm. blockchain, but- Yeah, a little bit where we're headed now, it looks like we're headed into a much uh, safer and progressive way of interacting with each other and handling things economically. And um, I feel like overall, overall, like just looking at history overall, <laughs> I think we're headed in more and more progressive direction, like a, a happy 
healthier direction overall. But it's not to discount some some stuff that's annoying <laughs> that's happening here and now. But um, but yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on blockchain. Like, I know a little bit about it that it it gives individuals security and in, in a way and um, privacy in a way that financial transactions can be more protected, for example. Is that what you're thinking of? But I get the sense you have more thoughts than that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it can go beyond that because with blockchain, everything is, uh, everything is transparent. So everything gets recorded. So you can't manipulate systems, you can't manipulate money you, uh, every transaction that you make is going to be linked to your own uh, mark in the blockchain. So it's safer in that sense. And also if, if crypto becomes a universal uh, money for humanity, mm -hmm. then we won't have to worry about inflation, we won't have to worry about central authorities. We have, we have more, um, it just be more power to the people because we wouldn't have to worry about any third party taking a fraction of the money that we'd already own because mm -hmm. everything would be peer to peer, person to person. So I could just drop you some Ethereum, for example, um, within three seconds and that can be made through a smart contract. <laughs> and I'm just totally nerding out right now because yeah, yeah. I've been yeah, looking yeah. into it, but um, it's just so much easier because it's all within the blockchain. So it's all recorded, transparent, and it just happens like that with a snap of a finger. And we don't need any third party governing how that transaction is made. It's just a promise that's made between me and you. And the mm -hmm. fact that mm -hmm. it goes, this applies to all humans in the world, then, you know, we're going to have to shift technologically, like governments are going to have to shift. They're going to have to adapt because if most of the people start taking part in this technological shift, then authority has no choice but to adapt to how it's happening. And also like talking about algorithms, Silicon Valley is using harmful algorithms to make money off of the people. But with blockchain, we're more protected because data is private. Mm. And it's just, it, it's really fascinating to me. The word so. equalizing comes to mind as you're talking. Equalizing. Yeah, yeah, but it's almost like going back to barter where people just dealt directly with each other. Not that it's barter because we're using currency, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's what that's yeah. what I hear when they express that vision of it. Yeah. So I think and who knows what what harmful stuff can come from it, you know, like like with the atomic sure. bomb, I don't know. I don't know if they really knew what they were actually bringing into the world or like, maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> there was like, there was a spectrum. Some of the scientists were very concerned. Like one of my grandfather's students just refused to work on it altogether. And he went off and became a geologist instead. <laughs> nice transition. Yeah. And then some left because originally the bomb was to be built to stop Germany. Mm. Hitler, Hitler was taking over European countries and slaughtering millions of Jews and Hungarians and Poles and gay people and mm -hmm. even some black people, I think, um, and Russians. And um, so originally the bomb was to stop Hitler but then Hitler fell before they used the bomb. So there was some corruption because they kept going and one or two scientists left at that point. And it was very difficult for them to leave like the FBI was following them. But one of them, Joseph Rotblatt, he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize instead of the, the um, 
physics because he he was he left and he started an anti-nuclear pro proliferation organization wow yeah and then after the bomb was dropped on hiroshima nagasaki it was actually the scientists who were the first ones to warn society of the dangers of nuclear proliferation so in a way because they were working on it they were conscripted in a sense by the army you know by the military to work on it but they were also they had a jump to think about ahead of time the implications of it and mm. it seems to me that we need other kinds of governance in our world because when they issued those warnings if society had been able to respond maybe we wouldn't have ended up with a nuclear arms race maybe we could have had a nuclear deceleration race instead yeah well i watched a ted talk and this guy was saying how we are very bad at listening to warning signs and as a collective we usually start acting on when things actually end up getting bad yeah so. like we look the crisis point and it, to me part of that is our systems of governance part of it i mean this gets back to what i said before about technology being ahead of human maturity and that we need to increase our maturity level as a species and that goes individually and also collectively oh um, yeah totally yeah. it's like giving and, a five-year-old a car to drive exactly <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And part of it is governance, like our governance systems are so clunky, like when you talk about blockchain and the, and the speed of it, and the, the vision of it is that it's responsive and quick and gets rid of intermediaries. So we need, we need the equivalent of that in governance, you know, in how we govern ourselves so that when there's an issue, we're not just kind of trying to lobby our our delegate to do what we want. Like that's such a clunky way of doing things. We need a system where our intelligence is somehow gathered and applied. Like it, it might not even be that we would vote for delegates anymore. We might vote for issues. Like we might vote every day instead of, you know, having these big campaigns that are so expensive and spend all this money and you get someone that's sort of a compromise and, at best and at worst you get yeah. someone like Trump. <laughs> so if we if we have people that were I mean this is something that I daydream about is what if scientists um, around the world like not just physicists but um, social scientists psychologists you know like people that had training and care about humanity and totally and what if we voted on issues and so we were always we were always um, being in the moment, letting um, whoever was running the government know what we needed. More like a body, right? Like our cells tell, tell the body what it needs. It's not just the brain sitting up there at a desk going, okay, we're going to do this now. No, the heart is sending messages, the cells, the, the intestines, mm -hmm. the belly, the liver, like our whole body is sending messages all the time. It's this incredible um, orchestra. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that's what blockchain is going to provide us. It's going to provide more of a collective response rather than just very few having uh, the control, if you will. Um, but I was I was going to say something in response to what you were saying, but I lost my train of thought. <laughs> It will come back. It will come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's, it's funny actually how historically I feel with, with governance, it always ends up coming down to what's like kind of compromised, like how you were saying. And we all know what's, well, maybe I'll say this with a grain of salt. I feel like at least from individual, from the individual standpoint, we know what's best for us, but sometimes we just get so caught up in our past cycles mm. and our, um, you know, our past routines that 
we we neglect how we can change and at a collective level it just it's just the individual maximized or multiplied right yeah we can achieve that wouldn't that be incredible yeah, yeah. and it's how i ended up being a deciding to be a counselor is because and a coach also is mm -hmm. because i really want to help people maximize who they are drop the things hindering them from their past develop new capacities and and to be fully human in spirit how do we do that or what's the first step we can take to maximize ourselves to our fullest potential yeah the first when people ask for the first step i always kind of want to go oh wait <laughs> <laughs> And, and do the, the thing like it depends and all of that and yeah true and um but if we if we let all that go it's really it's looking within i mean mm. it comes back to inquiry or that proprioceptive dialogue that you mentioned um, yeah it comes back really really looking within like the clients that i have that um do really well are the ones that are already looking within so they're coming to me and they're saying you know i noticed that i do this and i really don't know why i'm still doing this yeah well you know what olivia so i feel like when people say i don't know it it's them limiting themselves to their own self-knowledge and i think we we do know and it's helpful to get an outside perspective to help guide us even more deeper into what we already know Mm -hmm. But when people say, I don't know, it just hinders so much self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. When people say, I don't know in a session, then I usually what I do is I offer to guide them in a body sensing exercise or a breath exercise. Oh, it's can, amazing. What's that? How do you, can you give us an example of sure. what that is? Yeah. I just want to say it's amazing how when we come back into our body, then then we begin to know again, because it's it's like you said, it's just a message that we're giving ourselves when we say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so what's the oh, exercise? <laughs> oh, um, well, one of my favorite exercises that I learned in the diamond approach is um, it's, it's called sensing, looking and listening. Mm. And um, it starts with sensing your right foot and you just notice, I mean, you can do it right now. Yeah, I, just, I, I, yeah I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, you just notice whatever you're feeling in your right foot and you don't, you don't need to change it. So you might only have a vague sensation in your foot or you might mm -hmm. feel an itch or whatever. And then, then you move to your right ankle and you sense your right ankle, your right calf, your right lower leg, right knee, your right thigh, you might, and your butt, your right butt cheek, and you might notice, you know, the weight of your thigh or the texture of your slacks or the feel of the chair. And then you move to your right hand. So you sense your palm and your fingers and the back of your hand, your right wrist, forearm, and whatever you notice is good. You know, you might notice temperature, texture, right elbow, right upper arm. Yeah, and then you could take a moment and notice both your right arm and leg. And then move over to your left upper arm. And just notice any weight or tension or proprioception in your left elbow, the inside and the outside, your left forearm. 
left hand and rest. Sometimes there's a little bit of tension in the wrist. Left fingers, back of your hand. And then moving to your left upper leg, feeling your butt in the chair on the left side, left thigh. And again, just whatever you notice is perfect. Your left knee, back of your knee, front of your knee, connecting down to your lower leg on the left, left ankle, and your left foot, feeling the bottom of your foot on the floor, top of your foot, your toes, and then feeling your left leg and arm maybe more balanced out now you can sense both your arms and legs and then the last part is just noticing sound so the way that you let yourself notice your arms and legs you just gently allow sound so my voice whatever sound is where you are in your location and then with your eyes, when you open your eyes, you don't have to look at me, but you can just allow whatever you see to come into your eyes in that really gentle way that physical sensation does whenever you're ready. That's so cool. You know what I, I noticed when, um, when we just did that? So I learned that our most dominant side, like for what hand we use to write with, for example, like that's our masculine. And then the, um, the side that you use less is your more feminine. Mm. And so I'm so right-handed, it's insane. Like my mm. right side of the body is just the ultimate performer. <laughs> and so when we were just doing that, I could just feel how much heavier my right side is than my left side. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, how does getting in touch with these physical aspects of our body uh, get us more in touch with our emotional self-inquiring? Mm, yeah. Us? Is it okay to keep using you as an example? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So just now you said in your right, you feel heavier and you associate that with your masculine side mm -hmm. and your left, the feminine. So, so let's do a little experiment. So with your right hand, if that's your inner masculine and your left hand, it's your inner feminine. Mm -hmm. And then just sense in what's what do you notice in, in your right hand? In my right hand, it's more warm and sweaty than my left okay. hand. In your left hand, what do you notice there? It's, it's colder and lighter. Colder and lighter, okay. Yeah, or it's not like colder, but it's just, it's not as sweaty as my right hand, I guess. Okay. <laughs> and your heart, when you when you let your heart listen to these two parts, your masculine and your feminine, mm -hmm. what do you notice? Well, I guess... Personally, for me, I, I can't tell which direction it's going. That's but fun. when I'm like in my heart, um, or I guess like my chest area is kind of more, it's a little sensitive. Okay, so right. try this. I see you moving. Is That's your left hand you're moving, right? Yeah. I always get confused on Zoom. Okay, yeah, so, <laughs> so put your left let your left hand touch your heart really gently 
and just see what you notice. And meanwhile, your right hand is still being the masculine. Hmm. I guess I feel calmer. Hmm. Right, like, yeah, it's just, I guess, um, lighter when I touch, mm -hmm. once I touched my chest with my left hand. So lighter and calmer. So mm -hmm. your feminine hand is touching your heart center and you feel a little bit lighter and calmer. Mm -hmm. Anything else or? Mm. I think that's it. Okay, so gently take your left hand away and then slowly bring your right hand to your heart center. So now the masculine's touching the heart center. Hmm. I guess, I mean, maybe I'm just making connections in my head, but once my right hand touched my my heart, there's more like noise from the outside that started going. <laughs> so I hear more noise. Interesting. And, and that kind of makes sense because the masculine is outgoing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just say it. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say, yeah, it's more outgoing. And I guess like sensationally, when my hands started touching my chest, like there wasn't as much of a like heaviness there as there was before, but um, like sensationally, yeah, my right hand is a lot heavier than my left hand. <laughs> even now. Yeah, even now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, so right when you told me to get into my heart, I, started thinking of, you know, stuff right now that's kind of challenging me. And I think in a way that kind of goes to say, maybe when we get in touch with our emotional intelligence, like the stuff that is going on underneath suddenly starts to just surface and yeah. once it surfaces, you pay attention to it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm so glad you had that. Yeah. Because rather than me telling you that, that you experienced it directly is really cool. And I want to say to your listeners that I made this up with you in the moment. I mean, the sensing looking exercise, sensing looking listening exercise is a, is a specific guided sensing mm -hmm. That I did, but the part with the hands and your heart, I made that up with you through the connection that I'm having with you. So I don't want your listeners to think, oh, I have to be able to sense my heart because everybody's different. So I'm, you know, it, yeah. it might have been a different way in, but it's the same in terms of what you just said about connecting to our body, connecting to our emotions, then whatever needs to show itself does, whatever we need to see comes up. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that went through my head while we were doing that was people that tend to be more rational. I, I think in my head about how you can rationalize this. And I sure. think like, I mean, I want to say, I feel like I, with these exercises, um, especially like getting in touch with your emotions. And this is very much what acting is. I'm an actor. Um, it's very much, it's just like having your own experience and it's disregarding what it's supposed to look like or what you think it's supposed to look like or what you think you're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, can you rationalize these kinds of exercises? <laughs> what, what makes you ask that? I think of, 
uh, I guess people that are a bit more heady, people that mm -hmm. are more um, science and uh, physical. Yeah. Uh, like physically related type of people. Like, I don't know if emotions are technically always physical. Like, I think they represent themselves physically when when they have an outburst, but are they physical, so to speak? I don't know. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to bridge the rationale with the mm. experience and the exploration of the emotions. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a man, Eugene Gendlin, that, that people can look up, G-E-N-D-L-I-N, -E and he developed focusing, which is, um, an, it's another name for what we were doing. And it's where you sense your body to find what's going on. And through his work, they, they actually did some studies and they found that in counseling, when people have an, a felt sense, they're more likely to succeed in counseling than if it's just talking. Mm. I think I also, do, yeah, no, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, like, getting asked questions to come to your own answers is also very helpful, like, mm -hmm. when getting worked with, um, with a counselor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And I do tailor, because some people prefer to work with just talking, and then that's fine. Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't force any one particular technique on anyone. I mean, I love counseling because each of us is a universe and yeah. I get to meet so many different kinds of people through doing counseling and tailor the approach to what their spirit is asking for and what they're rationally asking for as well. Definitely. What is it that draws you to counseling? Because I feel like in another life, I'd totally be a therapist. I'd love to. <laughs> so I'm curious, what, what draws you to helping people? Like, is it just the shared wisdom? Because in my case, like I, I collect wisdom because mm. I like reading philosophy and I like listening mm. to people that are wiser than me. And anything that clicks with me that they say, I just like, I collect it and then I like to share it and add my own kind of twist onto it. Um, and I feel like in general, people kind of have these similar patterns in some ways that I notice. And depending on where the wisdom comes, you can always make some sort of connection with some particular sort of knowledge and offer it to them and hopefully yeah, like it clicks with them the same that it did with you so. yeah like we're doing in this conversation we're kind of playing with different kinds of wisdom yeah yeah so to answer your question um when i was a kid i didn't know what i wanted to be and then i i read um jung jung's book carl jung it's called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Mm. And it's his memoir about, in a way, becoming a counselor. I mean, he was a psychologist, so he had different credentials. But he, in the book, he shares these really bizarre dreams he had and what they meant and kind of like how he psychoanalyzed himself and how he developed his soul and his spirit and then began working with clients, but he continued to grow. And that captivated me as a profession that um, you never stop growing because I'm always doing my own healing work and my own growth work so that when I'm meeting my clients, it's fresh. And it's mm -hmm. such a creative field. Like, again, since every one of us is completely unique, when I meet someone, it brings something different out in me each time. Yeah. And then there's that um, dialogue between us, like you were talking about a minute ago, where it's like a synergy between me and the client, what gets created and, and what um, healing or wisdom emerges. 
Definitely. And it's a very, I feel I mean, this might be a given, but of course there's a lot of emotional intelligence involved with counseling. Mm. Um, but I, I think one time I did this exercise because I was in this personal development uh, workshop and we were, we were learning like some basics of what therapy is and like kind of just for fun, we, so we just sat across from each other and we just like played therapists. And I noticed that like on my end, in, in some ways I would get uh, caught up in my head of like, oh no, I need to respond. I need to give this person advice. I need to, you know, and I think, I think that's just, as a friend, I noticed that um, there's this kind of friendship component to uh, doing anything therapeutical. Like it's really just listening and then responding curiously and then offering a perspective and then asking questions that invite them to self-inquire. So I very much like asking people questions and seeing where they can come up with their own answers. So, yeah, I don't know. That's my little touch. I'm, I'm obviously, I'm not a therapist. I'm not qualified, but <laughs> that's my take on it. Well, that's a core of it is is um is that ability to deeply listen to another i mean yeah. that's a core of being a counselor and then the, there's a lot of training because well one of the things is transference and counter-transference hmm. like if i have a client and the client reminds me of my father and i get all balled up about it well i'm not going to be a very good counselor oh yeah so I have to have done my own work to have healed any parental wounds I might have. And it's not like you have to be totally healed to be a counselor. You have to be healed enough so that you're aware. So if I notice, oh, I'm having these weird reactions with this new client, then I can go to my supervisor and say, you know, la la la, and work out what it is, or go to a peer and say, hey, I need to do a peer consult with you and work this out. So that when I'm, when I go back to that client, then I'm really a hundred percent there for them. I'm not caught up in, in some mind game or some old um, contract that I might've had with a parent. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, totally. I think, I guess the way that I interpret that in my own world is kind of like uh, relationships, for example. So like for me, a lot of stuff shows up in romantic relationships. And the more that I introspect on my own triggers and stuff that comes up, mm -hmm. and rather than taking so much personally, I give myself the space to observe what these triggers are yeah. uh, and psychoanalyze myself. <laughs> Sometimes I worry that I psychoanalyze myself to the detriment, but I mean, I think as long as I'm empowering myself. As long as you're empowering yourself, you're on the right track. If you're disempowering yourself, then it's good to grab a friend to help or, a <laughs> or get some support. Yeah, but if, if, it, if you're finding it empowering, then right on. That's great. Yeah. So I think one last thing I wanted to touch up on was, um, so you do work with uh, like those who have passed away, right? You wrote an mm -hmm. article on it. And yeah. I've been curious to touch up on a conversation about that because um, I'm fascinated by what, what that is. Mm. Yeah, so up until 2016, I'd only had the odd connection with a family member who passed away. But starting about five years ago, um, it, it just, you know, it was just like basically one day, someone who had just died in spirit, they showed up to me and we had a conversation. And it, it just, it really opened me in a whole new way. Wow. So 
with those conversations, are they, are they like, um, I know that words are kind of hard to use when, when you mm -hmm. touch up on these kinds of conversations, because words give you such little access to the vast universe that we live in. And so yeah. I think, um, I'm curious if like the communication, is it more of a, is it like talking through your heart center? Like, is it like an understanding that when you communicate with those who have passed or is it, is it like an actual like dialogue, like how me and you are doing, but like in a yeah. different way? For me, it's usually more of a felt kind of impressionistic connection. Occasionally mm. it's been more like an actual dialogue, but that's really rare for me. I think it depends, you know, everybody's a little bit different with this. And like, for me, I don't, even though I, it is a skill of mediumship, I don't advertise myself as a medium because I don't want to do it on demand. Yeah. I just see it as something that is um, part of my work, but it's not, it's not part of the work that I put my shingle out for, if that makes sense. It's, yeah, totally. It's more in service. So the way it's it's happened is either people that I know or people in communities that I'm a part of. It seems like somehow with those individuals that I've connected with when they've died, there's something for me to learn from them or there's something for them to learn from me, almost like I'm helping guide them in their transition after death. And mm. um, so sometimes it's reciprocal and sometimes it's more, you know, like giving or receiving. It's very fluid and it's really opened me to seeing how our life, when we come to the end of life, there's a transition to death. And then there's after death, there's another transition and that we can keep growing. So do you, do you feel in communication with them during their transition into death or is it after that? For me, it's been after and I've talked to some people where it's more like during the transition, but for me, it's, I think it's always been after. And that I find interesting too, because I have this idea that we're probably you know, somehow more, just like we have, some of us are good at golf and others are good at singing. Like mm -hmm. some of us are better at, you know, certain phases of helping with death than others. Wow. And somehow we must be getting positioned to where we can be of most benefit. Wow. And I want to say to your listeners, to people that, you know, we talked about being rational and that mm -hmm. I don't have proof for any of this and I'm not, asking anyone to believe me if they're not comfortable with it. And I know a lot of people are comfortable with it and a lot of people aren't. And so I'm, I just want to say that, that to your listeners that I respect your belief, yeah. what, you know, how you hold this to me, I'm not making it up because it's, it's like, well, recently someone that I was close to passed away, but I didn't have any role in helping them after death. And then, someone else passed away who I'd only known a little bit and I had a much bigger role. So I don't feel like I'm making this up, but again, I don't want to, I don't want to force it on anyone because it's not something that we can prove. It's, it's very ephemeral. Totally. And, you know, I, I get so, I get so drawn to these kinds of conversations because I'm so curious. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't have my own experiences with in this area, but I do like to make connections between what I do understand based on my own past experience um, with subjects like this that I don't have experience in. But I think, yeah, I think the reason why I, I take into consideration the opposing uh, perspective is because I try to make a, a uh, I try to make a bridge, or I try to, mm -hmm. I try to make it so that in some way it is understandable. Mm 
mm-hmm. to the other, but I mean, maybe That's it's not really possible. Important. Yeah, <laughs> it's really important to build those bridges. So I'm glad that you see it that way. Yeah. 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 And I want to tell everyone that your ancestors are there for you. So even if you don't consciously connect with your with their your ancestors, they're there. And I've just seen it so much with my constellation circles where we do ancestral healing and also nature constellations. But I've seen it, you know, with one-on-one clients where I'll just have this sense to ask them, do you want to check in with your grandmother or do you want to check in with your great grandfather and and when they do it's amazing like, um, like last week um someone who had never done that work before i offered it to the to the client and um after working with it for a little while they said it feels like a hug it was so <laughs> nice they actually made the connection and yeah, our ancestors, they want us to know they're there because things are rocky in the world right now and they can they can help us. Like we can each look to our ancestors, to our grandparents or great grandparents or parents if they passed on for help. You know, like you can take a picture and put it in a nice place where you live of, of the person or the family members you want to connect with and write them a letter or light a candle for them. and. Mm. like you might not hear an answer right away but you'll get a dream or some other image will come you might see a hummingbird how cool yeah they communicate to us in different ways that's a really good way to start and it's and it's good for you and it's good for all of us on the planet right now we need that reciprocal support between us and our ancestors and our nature constellations or this constellations work that you do, is that related to getting in touch with your ancestors? Yeah, the constellation work is a, is a group thing where, um, well, there's, there's different kinds of constellations. So it started with family constellations. And in family constellations, um, people take turns representing each other's family members. So Mm -hmm. like I could be your mom and someone else could be your dad and someone else in the group could be you. I don't, I don't know. Do you have sisters and brothers? I've never asked. I have four sisters and a brother. So yeah, I have a lot of siblings. Represent your siblings or, you know, whoever needed to be in the constellation for the issue that you want to look at. Hmm. And then we sit in a circle and the people representing are in the center and they stand in relationship to each other. So taking it away from you as an example, um, just like a generic example, sometimes the mother and father are facing away from each other or um, there's different, maybe three of the members are together and one member is kind of off by themselves. So one of the first things that we look at is, is that initial constellation. That's why it's called constellations. It's, it's, the, it's the relationship of the people in the family to each other and then we let each person sense in so it's again it's it's like an inquiry to what it what does it feel like to represent this person's mother or this person's father Hmm. wow dialogue that sounds fascinating and then the other constellations work is it kind of it's based off the, the similar model right yeah yeah so with nature constellations instead of representing family members, we represent aspects of nature like fish or volcano or mother earth or geopolitical earth. Wow. So where can my audience find more of your work to learn more? Thank you. Yeah, on my website, fermi.ca. So um, maybe you can put that up for them. It'll all be linked in the notes. Great. Yeah, and then um, my writing is on Medium on our Blossoming Matters. Beautiful. And then you have an Instagram handle now, right? Yes, I do. (laughs) Olivia underscore Fermi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so all of that will be linked in the show notes. Um, 
Thank you so much, Olivia. I learned so much from you today. And I think whoever's listening is going to get a great amount of value. So I'm really excited. I've talking with you. It's been delightful. Thank you. Yeah, of course.